There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Why, O Lord, do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That was the question posed by King David in Psalm 10 when he was in the midst of great personal difficulty. And I suspect it is a question that we have all echoed at one point or another in our lives. For the Bible is clear, suffering and pain are the common lot of humanity. Jesus himself made this point very clear. Speaking to his disciples on one occasion, he said, in this life you will have tribulation. And the Old Testament book of Job was even more emphatic. It said, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. And that's why at one point or another, we all join the psalmist in asking that most basic of questions. Why? When hardship or difficulty comes into our lives, when everything seems to be engulfed in turmoil, we all want to know why. Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? And perhaps most important of all, why does God seem to stand so far off in times of trouble? There is perhaps no more basic human need or desire than to try and make sense of suffering and pain when they come into our lives. And that, you see, is exactly what the people in this morning's Gospel lesson were attempting to do when they came to Jesus. Luke tells us they were trying to make sense of suffering. They were trying to make sense of what appeared to them to be an utterly senseless situation. Now, to be honest, we don't know a great deal about this event described here in Luke chapter 13. This is the only place where it's mentioned in all of Scripture. But apparently, a group of Galilean Jews, that is to say Jews from the northern part of Israel, had been murdered by the order of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And not just murdered, mind you, but actually slaughtered while they were engaged in the peaceful act of worshiping at the temple. That's what's meant by that phrase, Pilate mingled their blood with that of their sacrifices. It was a particularly gruesome act, and yet one that was in perfect accord with the governor's bloodthirsty reputation. Ancient sources indicate that Pontius Pilate was a terribly wicked man. His administration was marked by many similar atrocities. You want to get a sense of just how terrible he was and of how terrible this event was for the people of that day, try and imagine a group of terrorists coming into church on Sunday morning and opening fire on people as they are filing forward to receive Holy Communion, mingling their blood with that of the sacramental wine. We'd be absolutely appalled by that sort of thing. But that's exactly what had happened in Jesus' day. This was a very disturbing event for the people. And because they knew that Jesus was a Galilean, From the same region as the victims, they were quick to bring the news of this tragedy to him. And yet today's gospel lesson indicates that it wasn't just the news that they brought to Jesus. No, they apparently brought with them a certain assumption as well. The assumption that the victims of this heinous crime were in some way, at least in part, responsible for their own demise. You see, one way that people try to make sense of suffering and pain when they encounter it is to suggest that it must be the suffering person's own fault. 
you know, bad things only happen to bad people. So if you're going through difficulty or hardship, it's probably because God or the universe or fate or karma or whatever it is is trying to get back at you. Well, there were many Jews in Jesus' day who subscribed to this theology of suffering being the automatic result of sin. They believed that if you were going through a hard time, if you were afflicted with some sort of physical malady or disability, whatever it might be, it was because you were under the judgment of God. This was a form of divine retribution. But I want you to notice how Jesus responded to this assumption. Luke tells us that he rejected it out of hand. Look at verse 2. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You'll notice Jesus completely turns the tables on the people. He said, rather than engaging in idle speculation as to why other people are suffering, he said, you really ought to be asking yourself why you are not suffering. Because all have sinned, all are under the judgment of God, and all, without exception, are in need of repentance. He goes on to reiterate the point in verse 4. Here he refers to another well-known disaster, the collapse of a building on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He says, or how about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is Jesus' way of reminding us that, my friends, there are no simple answers to the problem of suffering. There are no pat answers to the problem of pain. Now, yes, we all want to make sense of suffering and misery when we encounter them. That's only natural. But Jesus' point is that suffering is actually a great mystery. And it does no good to oversimplify matters. I'm reminded of how C.S. Lewis framed it at the beginning of his book on suffering, The Problem of Pain. He said, if God were good, he would seek to make his creatures happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do as he pleased. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, it appears God lacks either goodness or power or both. That, Lewis said, is the problem of pain in its simplest form. And I think Lewis got it right. I think that's exactly the way many people today look at suffering and pain when they encounter it. They say God is either not good, God is not powerful, or God's not even there. But you know, when you actually stop and think about it, you begin to realize that is a very naive perspective. To begin with, it assumes that God is somehow responsible for all the suffering that we encounter in life. And that's just ridiculous. Actually, the lion's share of the suffering that you and I encounter in this world is the direct result of human sin. Think about what's going on right now in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine. 
all of the suffering, the misery, the pain that's there. That's not God's fault. That is the fault of wicked and ambitious men. Now you say, well, couldn't God just stop that? Well, sounds simple enough. But actually, for God to stop that would require Him to limit our free will, our free choice, which has consequences. It would make us less than human. It would make us mere robots. Not only that, but this naive perspective also assumes that God has no good reason for allowing pain to come into our lives. And that's not necessarily the case either. Now, it's true, we may not know what that reason is, because remember, we are finite. We are creatures. We are fallen. We see through a glass dimly. But just because we cannot divine the purpose doesn't mean that God, in His infinite wisdom, does not have one. And finally, this naive perspective assumes that this life, this earthly existence is all there is, and our earthly happiness is God's ultimate concern. But folks, that is anything but a Christian perspective. As believers, we know full well this life is not all there is. Our existence on this planet is a mere blip in the vast expanse of eternity. So whatever sufferings we are enduring, they are at least momentary. And that's why you'll notice as you read through the Bible, Scripture's really not concerned with that question, why? The Bible's really not concerned with the question, why people suffer or why some people suffer more than others. It doesn't engage in that kind of speculation. Instead, the Bible is concerned with a completely different question. What? Not why does God allow suffering to take place, but what is God doing in the midst of that suffering? See, the Bible is very clear. All people suffer, without exception. The ignorant and the educated, the high and the low, the rich and the poor, males and females, black and white, Everybody suffers. My goodness, even Jesus suffered. We say it every Sunday in the Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate. But the Bible says, while all alike suffer, not all suffering is alike. Now let me repeat that because it is a very important distinction. All alike suffer but not all suffering is alike. Or to put it another way, the Bible says that we all suffer, but the Christian, because they are God's child, suffers for a purpose. Now that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 8 when he says, For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. Paul is reminding us that in the sovereignty of God, everything, not just the victories, not just the happy moments, but even the tragedies, even the disasters, the catastrophes, the disappointments, all of these things can, and what's more, will be used by God for our ultimate good. And 
And so in the time that we have remaining this morning, let me go ahead and suggest just a few of the things that God may be using the pain and the suffering to do in order to produce good in our lives. I'm not going to answer that question, why? But I do want you to understand what God may be doing when suffering and pain come into your life, as they inevitably will. So first of all, the Bible says sometimes God is using the pain and the misery in our lives for a corrective purpose. That is to say, to bring us back on track when we have wandered far afield of the path of righteousness. Now again, we have to be very careful here because as we've just seen, Jesus dismissed out of hand this erroneous notion that all suffering is the immediate result of sin. Jesus said no to that. But while that is not always the case, it is nevertheless sometimes the case that God will use pain in our lives to get our attention, to get us back on track. Now those of you who have had children know how this works. Every single responsible parent at one point or another has had to discipline their children when they go off track. And we do that why? Not out of any sadistic desire to inflict pain. We do that out of love, don't we? I'll give you an example from my own life. Our eldest son, Jeffrey, when he was a toddler, used to love to play with the electrical sockets in the house. He would crawl over there and like to stick his finger. Now, of course, that's a very dangerous thing to do. He could get electrocuted, so we would always discipline him. We would say, stop that, no. We'd pick him up, move him to another part of the room, another part of the house. Didn't make a difference. He'd find another one. So we went out and bought those little plastic plugs, you know, you, you stick in the socket. But he was determined. He would go over there and try to pry them out, or he'd get a little toy as an implement and try to pry it out. And I realized I had no choice. I saw him doing this one day. I went over and I slapped his hand. And I will never forget the look on his face. His eyes welled up with tears. His mouth fell open and he just let out a wail. I had inflicted pain. He didn't understand why. It hurt him. It hurt me. But let me tell you something. He never touched the electrical sockets again. <laughs> that pain was inflicted to get his attention. That pain was inflicted for his well-being. And that pain was inflicted for love. Well, let me tell you something. Sometimes God will discipline us and it can be painful. Here's how the author of Hebrews put it. He said, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. 
but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Sometimes, yes, God will use the pain and the disappointments in your life to correct you because he loves you, because he is concerned for the well-being of your soul. And that's the first question, perhaps, when we are going through a tough time, we ought to ask ourselves, Lord, what are you trying to teach me here? Are you trying to get my attention? Are you trying to correct me? Now, that's not always the case, but it sometimes is. And when it is, we should not be disheartened. Charles Spurgeon once said, there is more evil in a drop of sin than an ocean of affliction. Better to burn for Christ than to turn from Christ. So some of the suffering that comes into our life, we're told, can be used by God for corrective purposes. But some of the suffering that comes into our lives is for purely constructive purposes. That is to shape us, to hone us, to transform us into a better version of ourselves. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in today's first lesson from Romans when he says, and we rejoice in our sufferings. How many of you rejoice in your sufferings? He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? He says, because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. There are two words in this passage from Romans that I want us to note very carefully. The first is that word translated as sufferings. In English, we have any number of words that you can translate as suffering. We talk about pain, misery, travail, whatever it may be. The same is true in Greek. But here Paul uses a very specific word. It is the word flipsis. Literally translated, it means pressure. The kind of pressure that would crush you. It was often used in agriculture to describe the kind of pressure that is brought by a sledge upon the grain, separates the head, the wheat from the chaff, or the kind of pressure in a press where olives are crushed and the oil is produced, or grapes are crushed, and the wine is produced. Flipsis, pressure. That's how Paul describes suffering. Now here's the second word that we need to note. It is the word translated character in verse 4. And we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. The Greek word here is dokimos, and it means tested or approved. In the ancient world, when they would make coins, they did not mint coins the way we do today, and the coins were not uniform in size. Now, all of our coins are uniform. All quarters are the same size, dimes, nickels, pennies, whatever it may be. But in the ancient world, they didn't have the techniques that we have today. And so you would have the imprint of the emperor's face or the, em the empire seal, whatever it may be. But then there would be all this excess stuff around the edges. Like using a cookie cutter. You know, you press down and you get the imprint, but then you've got all that excess stuff around the edges. What do you do with that excess stuff? You peel it off, don't you? 
Well, what people did in the ancient world is they would get a tool and they would cut off all that excess stuff around the edges and melt it down and buy other coins. There were hundreds of laws against this in the ancient world because what eventually happened was that the coin would become so light it would become practically worthless. And merchants didn't want to accept it as legal tender and the coin had to be taken out of circulation. It was referred to as adokimos not approved. Well, what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5 is that sometimes God will allow pain, suffering, hardship to come into our lives in order to test us. In order to ensure that we will be approved. That we will become men and women of weight, of substance. I think about Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. I think that's what's happened to that man. I mean, just a few years ago, do you know what he was? He was a stand-up comic. And he has now become a leader of the free world. He has become an inspiration to people, a world-class leader. And that's because he has endured tremendous pressure. And that pressure has honed him and shaped him. Listen, folks, it's just a fact that most of the great people in history who have done great things, who've accomplished great things for the well-being of humanity, have been people who have endured great things. It is rarely the case that anybody who has had an easy life ever goes on to really make a big difference in the world. Again, I'll give you an example from my own life. As some of you know, our second son, Jackson, has recently been commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps. And I remember taking him up, we went up with him to Quantico to drop him off. He drove through the gate himself, but I remember watching him go. And he looked so scared. He looked like that little boy that used to sit in my lap on Saturday mornings. And I wondered, will he make it? And then I made the huge mistake of going home and watching a YouTube video on what these people have to go through. <laughs> and I saw all of the tremendous pressures, the physical pressure, the emotional pressure, the academic pressure, and I thought to myself, is it going to crush him? And somebody had said to me, Jackson is going to be a different person when he comes through this. And I just, I couldn't believe it. But I'll never forget his graduation day. After he'd taken the oath, he was there in his uniform, and I actually had an opportunity to have a face-to-face -face conversation, which I had not been able to do for months. And it was true. He was not the same person. He was not a little boy anymore. He was a man. He was a leader of men. He had weight. He had substance to him. He was dekemos. He was tested and approved. Listen, I don't know why suffering, pain, disappointment may be coming into your life. But I do know this, God can use that to shape you, to hone you, to transform you into the image of His Son, to transform you into a better version of yourself. He can test you, make you a woman, a man of substance, of weight, Dukimos. That old hymn that we sang on the way in here, 
put it well, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. So sometimes God will use the pain, the suffering that comes into our life for corrective purposes, to get us back on track, sometimes for constructive purposes, and sometimes God will use the pain and the disappointments in our life for His glory. To glorify Himself and to make us a better, more effective witness. On one occasion, Jesus and his disciples came upon a man who had been born blind. He was sitting there by the temple gate begging for alms. And when the disciples saw him, the first question they asked Jesus was this, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? See, the assumption was somebody must have done something wrong, otherwise he wouldn't be going through this. But Jesus responded, neither this man nor his parents sinned that he was born blind. This has happened, listen, this has happened so that the Son of God might be glorified. Now that's shocking. Because what Jesus is saying is that this man was born blind for a singular purpose. So that at one point, 30-some years later, the Son of God might appear upon the scene, heal the man, and bring glory to himself and make that man an inspiration to successive generations. Now that is a hard lesson for people to hear. It's an impossible lesson for unbelievers to comprehend. They just cannot understand why any good God would allow anybody to go through that for his own self-aggrandizement. But again, that fails to consider that, first of all, this life is very short. And second, it fails to realize that you and I were created by God and for God. He's the potter. We're the clay. And God can use us in any way that He chooses. That is God's business. Listen, it is this knowledge that our suffering can be used for God's glory that was such an inspiration to the martyrs down through the centuries. In 1555, two bishops in the Church of England, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were brought to a square in Oxford and tied to a stake to be burned alive for preaching the gospel. They were tied back to back, and as the flames began to leap up around their bodies, Hugh Latimer, the older of the two, cried out at the top of his lungs, Take heart, Master Ridley, for we shall this day light such a fire under England as I trust shall never be put out. Think about that. They're going to burn us, but in burning us, we are going to light a fire of our own, one which will never be extinguished, and it never has been. It is the fire of the gospel that burns in the hearts of men and women and we draw inspiration from them. They were powerful witnesses even today. Listen, I do not know why some people suffer and why some people suffer more than others. I don't know. 
But this I do know, that suffering and pain is going to come into your life sooner or later. You've heard me say this before. Every single one of us is in one of three places. We're either in a storm, we've just come out of a storm, or we're heading into a storm. But nobody avoids the storm. But I also know this, that whatever you're going through, God, if you belong to Him, is using that for your great good and for His greater glory. He may be using some of that suffering and pain to correct you, to bring you back into the path of righteousness for the salvation of your soul. He may be using some of that to construct you, to build you up, the pressures in life to make you into a better version of yourself, to fashion you into the likeness of His Son. And He may be using some of that for His own glory and to make you a more effective witness, but I can tell you this much, nothing, nothing will be lost in the economy of God's salvation. And I know this too, that whatever you're facing, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. That is the positive side of pain. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word and for this encouragement. We do not understand suffering. It is indeed a mystery. We read through Old Testament books like Job and there is no simple answer. We question God. He says, gird up your loins like a man. I'll question you. We don't have the answers, but we do know this, that you love us and that you are working all things together for our good. So grant us the eyes of faith. Grant us the grace to trust you even in the midst of the storms, knowing that you will use them, the fires of tribulation, to purify us make us acceptable to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.